Luke chapter 19 this morning, verses 28 through 48. We're going to look at Jesus, uh, his approach and his entry into the city of Jerusalem and see that Jesus Christ deliberately acts to identify himself as the anointed one, the Messiah, God's anointed king. Uh, Before we read the text, though, let's pause once again and ask for the Lord to help us this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come with a sense that this is a serious matter. Uh, we We are coming to hear the living and active word of God spoken to God's people. So give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to receive, and lives that bow low before the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God's word, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 19. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away uh, and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And he said, they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, Now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is, of course, referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes And the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. 
Well, again, Jesus acts deliberately to identify himself as the Christ, God's anointed king. Jesus knew it. He knew who he was. The crowds sort of knew it. The people within the city didn't get it at all. Those are the three headings that we're going to think about this morning as we look at this text together. Jesus knew it. The crowds sort of knew it. People of the city didn't get it at all. Uh, So Jesus knows that he is the Christ. That's why he acts as the king who is anticipated in the Old Testament. He deliberately identifies himself as the Messiah the people were waiting for. Take a look at several ways that he does that. First, notice his approach by the way of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just on the other side of a valley to the east of Jerusalem. And you might ask, well, why is the route Jesus is taking to Jerusalem significant? Well, listen to the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Now, people waiting for God's anointed king read this as a messianic text. And they believed that the Messiah who would come to Jerusalem would come by way of the Mount of Olives. Now, the dividing of the earth is it's prophetic imagery and it will not happen until Jesus goes to the cross. But Jesus comes deliberately by the Mount of Olives to fulfill Zechariah 14. And then look at what he does next. He gets a, he gets a colt. Uh, John's Gospel says it's a young donkey. It's Kind of strange though, isn't it? And when you're reading the passage, how this all unfolds. How does he he get this donkey? He he tells two disciples, hey, go into town, probably Bethany, the town of Bethany. Go into town and get this donkey that's tied up. And if anyone asks you why you're taking the donkey, tell them the Lord has need of it. How did Jesus know that the donkey would be there and would be tied up and how did Jesus know that if you, if you repeat what I'm telling you to say, that they'll say, oh, okay. I mean, seems like an easy way to get away with some theft if you ask me. Oh, the Lord needs it. <laughs> What's the explanation here? I, I think the most likely expo- explanation is that Jesus had this worked out. After all, Bethany was one of his favorite places to visit. Some of his favorite people lived there, some of his closest friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We know from John's gospel that Jesus had just been in Bethany where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So people knew him there. People saw the great works that he had done. So whoever this owner was, it's possible at least that they knew Jesus would come one day looking for their donkey And certainly they knew who the disciples were talking about when they said, the Lord has need of it. But however, however he gets it, he gets it for a purpose. Listen to uh, Zechariah chapter 9 this time, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble 
and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Jesus knew that text. Sometimes I think we read connections like this and we think, oh, come on, nobody would have made that connection in Jesus' time. But the reality is they didn't have computers and iPhones and iPads and all other things to distract them. They had Torah. And, and they, they knew their Old Testaments. Jesus knew this text. And uh, Zechariah 9 was part of the messianic expectation. He would come riding on a donkey. And then notice it's a colt that no one has ever sat on before. That's strange too, isn't it? It just seems like another insignificant, unimportant detail. What's going on here? Is Jesus, is Jesus just being picky? You know, oh, I don't want to ride on a donkey somebody else has ever been on. Yuck! No, that's, that's not what's going on here. Numbers 19, Deuteronomy 21, 1 Samuel 6 all suggest that an animal that had not been ridden was set apart as holy to the Lord. It was, if you like, a sanctified donkey. He would come uh, on this donkey that was set apart for a special purpose. And then there's another connection to the Old Testament messianic expectation. I wonder if you noticed as I was reading how many times the word tide is repeated. Uh, verse 30, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied. Untie it and bring it here. Verse 31, if anyone asks you why are you untying it? Verse 33, as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? It's a bit repetitive, I think, but I think it's Luke's way of drawing a connection to another Old Testament text. And the text that I think is in view here is Genesis chapter 49. What's going on in Genesis 49? Jacob is blessing his 12 sons. And, you know, blessing in that day was a big deal. It wasn't simply, hey, I love you. I hope things turn out okay for you. It was a covenantal blessing that was a prophetic word spoken to each son. And so he says to his fourth son, Judah, in Genesis 49, verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Okay, so the promised king would come from the line of Judah. That's, that's what Jacob is saying here. But then it says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. So here's this prophecy about Judah that the scepter of rule would not depart from him. And we know David was of the tribe of Judah and Jesus was a descendant of King David. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So people knew that God's anointed king would come from this line. And then it goes on to talk about a colt being tied up. And it looks as though Jesus was drawing a direct line from himself to this prophetic word. And so Jesus acts deliberately to identify with these passages about Christ. You know, Zechariah, he, he talks about a donkey. And it's a donkey no one has ever been on. And it's a donkey that's going to be tied to a vine. So there's no question that Jesus believed 
He was the promised king, the anointed Christ, the Messiah who would save his people from their sins. And my friends, this story, it happened. Maybe, maybe some people, as you're listening to this, you're saying, look, this is, this is just kind of silly. It's just a myth. Or perhaps these are embellished accounts of Jesus' approach and entry into Jerusalem, trying to make these, texts, these connections to these Old Testament texts to establish Jesus' identity. Oh, I think it's at least worth noticing here that all four Gospels that we have in the Bible record th- this story. It's interesting that, you know, not, all of, not a lot of stories in Jesus' life and ministry actually are found in all four Gospels. You've got feeding of the 5,000 and a couple other things. But when you get to the final week, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, it's as though everything slows down and all of the four Gospels come together and say, This is what you really need to understand. And all of a sudden, there's a great deal of harmony. And you've got Matthew the disciple, uh, Mark on the basis of Peter's eyewitness testimony, Luke after his careful research, and John, who is a part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, all testifying to this account of Jesus on his way into Jerusalem. Jesus clearly viewed himself to be the promised Messiah. So why is this important? Why am I, why am I harping on this point? Because, because today, most people think about Jesus in these terms. I, I like Jesus. He's a, he's a pretty cool guy. And I just want to say to you today, that's not an option. That's not an option to just like Jesus. This is a guy who acted like he was the one everyone had been waiting for. The one who would bring to fulfillment the plan and the purposes and the promises of God, the Messiah, the Christ. So he is either who he says he is or he's nuts. He's lost it. There's no room to just say, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he's, he seems like a pretty, pretty nice guy. He talks about love, caring for your neighbor, doing unto others as you would do unto yourself. It sounds all pretty good, but I don't think he's God himself come in human flesh to save us from our sins. But I like him. That's not an option. It's not an option that Jesus leaves open to us. Worship him and bow down, or why would you listen to him at all? He is just a whacked out delusional nut job, if this isn't true. Just to illustrate this, let me me say, um, let's, let's imagine it this way, okay? That uh, what I want to do is I want to take all of you after the worship service down to Washington, D.C., okay? And I've actually rented about 10 black SUVs. And I've got these little American flags that we can stick on the hood. And I have several uh, nice black suits rented for several of you uh, uh, young men with some pretty cool earpieces to go along with them. And I even got some motorcycles that some of you can ride in between the, the SUVs. And what we're going to do is we're going to go, we're going to go down to Pennsylvania Avenue. And right smack dab in the middle of the motorcade, Kelsey and I are going to be on a convertible. And we're going to be waving to everybody we pass by. Till we go to the Capitol. And there at the top of the steps is Pastor Dave with his Bible. And the music kicks in. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. <clears throat> you see where I'm going with this, I hope. You have a decision to make at that point. What are you going to think? You might think, Jared, yeah, I like him. He's a, pretty, he's a pretty nice guy, but I think he's lost it. I 
think there might be a few screws loose in his head. Either he is the president of the United States, which he is acting like, or he's certifiably insane. You can't say, oh, he's a nice guy, I like him. You have to make a decision. And it's the same with Jesus. He's crazy if he's not the Christ. But he knew who he was, so he intentionally acted like it. And this crowd sort of knew it. That's the second thing I want us to think about for a few minutes here. Before we look at that, before they, we look at what they do to show that they sort of knew it, let me just try to clear up, a, I think, a common misunderstanding. And the, the misunderstanding is that the crowd who shouts Hosanna on this day is the same crowd that shouts crucify him on Friday. That's wrong. The crowd that is shouting blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord is not the same crowd that shouts crucify him on Friday. That's a popular idea that pastors like to use a lot. Look at how fickle these people are. They call Jesus king one day. A few days later, they want him dead. But it's actually two different groups of people. So who are these people? Well, uh, verse 39, the Pharisees identify them as Christ's disciples, followers of Jesus. And when Jesus is riding along, we see that the whole multitude on their way to Jerusalem, they're actually not in Jerusalem, the city, when they're on their way, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. These are, I, I think, Galilean disciples who were no doubt with Jesus traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover season. The people who had been following him. These are, these are folks who have been listening to Jesus' teaching, seeing the kingly works that he was doing, and they're celebrating because they believe Jesus is indeed the promised king. The only trouble is that they don't quite get what sort of king he is yet. And their expectations are going to, to need to change. They're a bit like that man. You remember the man who is healed by the Lord Jesus and initially his, he was blind and his eyesight is only partially restored and he sees men walking around like trees until the Lord touches him with another bit of grace and he sees more clearly. I think that's kind of the condition that some of these folks are in. For, for them, this was, if you like, a nationalistic rally. The waving of the palm branches was, you know, what John tells, it's not here in Luke, but it was the equivalent of people standing by waving their national flag. But for Jesus, this was just one step closer to the cross. And so what did the crowd do, though, to show that they sort of get it? First, they spread out their cloaks on the ground. In 2 Kings chapter 9, the people did this when King Jehu came uh, victorious. You know, we say roll out the, the red carpet. They threw their cloaks on the ground. Same significance. Here's someone important. Here's the king. Another way we see that they kind of get it is that they praise Jesus. The pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast would, would, would sing the Hallel Psalms. Um, short for hallelujah. You know, Hallel, praise Yah. Short for Yahweh, uh, praise the Lord. The, the Hillel Psalms are Psalms 113 through 118. And the particular phrase that we see quoted here is from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. In Mark's account, it says they sang, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the people sang it antiphonally. You can ask one of the music people later what that means, but basically it meant, meant that they sang responsively. One, one group would, would shout out, Hosanna! And the other part of the crowd would respond, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I thought about trying to have you guys do that, but we won't do that today. Another, another time we'll do some responsive shouting here. So one group would shout Hosanna, the other would, would respond. And Hosanna means, means save us. But here in Luke, the people added something. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were proclaiming that Jesus was, he was more than a fellow traveler to Jerusalem on this pilgrim journey. And so Jesus portrays himself as the Messiah and the crowd goes along with it. But they only sort of get who Jesus is. They're, again, they're like that blind man who only saw partially. And so some of them are you know, caught up in the excitement, the enthusiasm, the adrenaline of the moment. But they certainly don't understand that Jesus is going there to die, to lay down his life. And so the crowd, what eventually happens actually is the crowd just disperses. And they go about their business in the city. They're, they're praising Jesus one minute. And then it's just as if everything goes quiet. They're done. You know, it makes me think, you know, the crowd is sort of like a lot of churchgoers. They're, they're really, really excited and enthusiastic about Jesus one moment. Yeah, we're worshiping Jesus. I'm all out for Jesus. And then when things get kind of difficult and hard or not what we expected, we just kind of fade. They don't quite understand. And they were happy for the celebration. But they took, at least some of them took offense at the cross. And so Jesus knew it. This crowd sort of knew it. But almost everyone in the city of Jerusalem didn't get it at all. You know, we call this the triumphal entry. But it's really, as I said a moment ago, the triumphal approach. Uh, when he enters the city of Jerusalem, the fanfare has completely died down. He's actually by himself. Perhaps his 12 disciples are with him, but the crowd is gone. And then Jesus goes to the temple by himself. Uh, but before he, goes to, uh, before he goes and enters the city and goes to the temple, he does, he does something else. And this is a passage that I want to come back to on another day and look at um, by itself, because it deserves our attention. But when he drew near to the city, what did Jesus do? Uh, he cried. And the language here is not merely the shedding of a few tears. Jesus' chest is heaving. Uh, Jesus is sobbing. He has, he has, in in a qualified sense, you don't misunderstand. He has, he has lost control of his emotions. I don't mean that in a sinful way because Jesus was always perfectly in control of his emotions. But Jesus is weeping over the people of Jerusalem. Would that you, even you, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you didn't know the way that makes for peace. And so you have this 
excited celebration followed by Jesus weeping. And then Jesus makes his way into the city of Jerusalem and he went to the temple. And Mark adds some interesting detail here. You know, Luke just gives you the short version. But Mark tells us he went into the temple and as it was already late, he, he just stood there in the temple and looked around at everything for a while. And then he left. He went out to Bethany for, for the night. It, it just seems so anticlimactic, doesn't it? I mean, what's going on here? There's this big triumphal party. And Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. And then he goes into the temple later in the day, stands there quietly and surveys the scene and looks at everything before him and says, I'm going to call it a night. Why do the Gospels record that little detail? I think, I think part of the clue is to note how much action in the coming days is going to center around the temple. You see that in verse 47. He was teaching daily in the temple during this week. Later in chapter 21, verse 37, every day he was teaching in the temple. Early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Jesus spent day after day in the temple, Luke 22, verse 52. So Jesus has a mission. You know, he, he may have ridden into town on a donkey and not a war horse because Jesus is not a political revolutionary. He's not coming to upend the Roman government. But make no mistake, Jesus is entering into a battle and he is about to fire the first shots. Uh, this temple... By the end of the week, this center uh, of everything the people held dear will become irrelevant in God's eyes. And a new center of worship will be established, namely Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus coming into the temple, looking around and then leaving, while it may seem anticlimactic, I think it comes with an air of an ominous warning. So just to use your imagination for a moment, the day is getting late, sun is, is setting, Jesus walks into the temple, he quietly looks around, he sees the money changers tables that he's going to turn over the next day, he sees the center of Israel's worship, and he knows in the week to come that he's, all, he's going to bring it all to an end. He looks and then he leaves, as if to say, there is a battle coming, but it can wait for another day. It's the calm before the storm. And then the next day when Jesus returned to the temple, what's he do? He pressed the issue big time, didn't he? I mean, he, he, he's got a plan and it's a public demonstration that he planned for prime time. So the people, the people don't know all that Jesus is doing. They're, they're just oblivious to the the theological significance of the zeal of the Son of God for the house of his Father. He's driving away these moneylenders, and for the rest of the week, he's warning the people again and again and again of the desolation that is to come because they would not embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to leave us with today, and it's a simple it's a simple point. Don't, don't be fooled. 
you know, your life will not go on as it currently is forever. 2019 could very well be the last year that some in this room walk upon the face of this earth. I'm not saying that to scare any of you. I'm just saying that to be realistic. Don't be fooled. Don't think that all of life is just going to be calm. You see, the people there had no idea that Jesus was going to come, that he was going to drive people out. By the end of the week, temple worship would be rendered obsolete in God's sight, and that in 40 years from then, the entire city of Jerusalem would be laid to waste. They didn't get that from a man riding in humbly on a donkey. But it was the Lord himself who was entering into battle. You see, here's what people say in America to something like this. That's fine. That's fine if you believe Jesus is Christ, the Christ, God's son. That's, that's your personal belief. That's just, you know, that's what Christians do. They're, they're into Jesus. They worship Jesus. They, they think a lot about Jesus. Just keep that to yourself. Don't hurt anybody. Don't bother anyone with your beliefs. But the great mistake many make is to think that you do not have to be concerned with this Jesus or that this Jesus is not concerned with you. Listen, make, make no mistake. There is nothing more important in your life than what you make of this Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, God's chosen king. And the question that this passage impresses upon us is simply this, true or false, true or false? If it's false, then frankly, why like this guy? He's nuts. If it's true though, why are, why are you living a double life? Why are you not taking the claims of Jesus seriously? Why are you so apathetic about who Jesus is and what Jesus came into the world to do? If Jesus is who he says he is, you know, we may all have calm now, but a day, a day of reckoning is coming. Jesus knew who he was. Some of his followers were, were beginning to get it, but so many had no clue. And it's the same today. Some are beginning to get it. Others have no idea. And so Jesus deliberately identifies himself as the Christ, the, the hope of Israel, the hope of the ages, God's chosen king who would be set over the nations, the Lord of lords and king of kings. He knew who he was. And all I want to leave us with is this simple point, dear friends, that it's it's time we start taking Jesus seriously. If he's the promised Christ, simply liking Jesus and fitting him around the edges of our lives is not an option. If that's who he is, he deserves nothing less than our trust and our love and our worship, our obedience, our very lives. The king who came down to lay down his life to make a way of peace with God. Reconciliation with God. Life eternal in a kingdom of joy and life and righteousness. Many of you know the way C.S. Lewis put it when he said that Jesus Christ is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And we've just been using two of those today. Set aside the liar. And the question I have for you as we wrap up is, 
is simply this. Is he lunatic or Lord? Jesus knew who he was. Do you? And if so, is your life following the conviction that you have? Let's pray. Father, some of us are like uh, blind Bartimaeus in need of the restoration of our sight. Others of us are like that blind man who have been touched by your grace to see something of who Jesus is, but we need another touch of your grace to more fully understand all that he has done to save us from our sins. Open our eyes, each and every one of us, to see Jesus in all of his glory and beauty and power to save and bring us to trust in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.